Okay, we're going to look at the, the rest of Genesis 12. We started it two weeks ago. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 9. Tonight we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. Not a terribly difficult passage to figure out what's going on here, uh, but hopefully we can draw some interesting insights out of it. Um, so Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, so now a brief, brief, brief emphasis on the word brief. Recap from two weeks ago. We looked at verses 1 through 9. We are now in the period or the part of Genesis that uh, chronicles patriarchal history. By patriarchal, we are, that means we are looking at these uh, great father figures. Uh, this is before the nation of Israel has been formed. These are the patriarchs. They would have ruled their families. They would have um, um, been sort of the, 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 the leaders of their families. They would have uh, set the, the stage for worship and, and, and obedience for their families. And it's going to trace the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ending with Joseph going into Egypt. So the three great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whenever you read throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes the Lord will say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who was the one who came and revealed himself to them and made covenants with them. These are the fathers. These are the patriarchs. We've left the, the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, the first, give or take, 2,000 years of world history that are sort of chronicled in a rather brief manner in the first 11 chapters, but they set the foundation. Genesis is written to the Israelites as they are about to enter into the promised land, and Moses is giving them their backstory because they may not know this. A lot of them may not know this backstory because they've been generationally slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So this is revealed unto Moses. Moses probably received a lot of this through Revelation, probably received a lot of this also through uh, stories that have been passed down, stories that he has gathered, but... All of this is put together for the purpose of telling the Israelites who they are, 
where they came from, and why they're going to where they're going. And in the first nine verses of chapter 12, we see the call of Abram as he is called out of his home, told by God to go to a land that he will show him, and he is given this promise, these, these promises, this covenant that God makes with Abraham, which is, in a sense, the, uh, the inauguration, if you will, of the covenant of grace that you see uh, hinted at in Genesis 3.15, where he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he calls him. If you remember from the end of chapter 11, um, this was probably a, st- a two-stage call. Uh, it, it starts with uh, leaving his ancestral home in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then they kind of make it halfway up to a city called Haran up in northern Mesopotamia. And then they stay there until Terah dies. And then again, Abraham is called to finish the journey, to come to the land that he will show him. So we see Abram move out in faith. Uh, he takes Lot, his nephew, and he takes Sarai, his wife, and all the possessions that they have, and they leave Haran, they leave everything that they knew behind, and they come into this land that is now uh, currently inhabited by the Canaanites, currently inhabited by the very people that, if you remember from the time of Noah, were cursed by God for what Ham did to Noah in the vineyard. Cursed be Canaan. He shall serve uh, Shem. He shall serve in the house of Shem. So he comes here and he knows that the Canaanites are here and they are dwelling in the land. These are the people, you see them in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, They've been here now for uh, a while. And you see uh, Abram, when he gets there, he begins to uh, dwell in tents. He is a sojourner in the land that God promised to give to him. So we talked a little bit about this idea. Uh, it's the title of a book. It's called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And that's Abram's life. Abram's life is this uh, one in which he is living in the gap between what God has promised him but also the reality that he sees before him. God says, I will give you this land, yet he doesn't own the land. God says, I will bless you and make you a great nation, yet he has no children. So Abram is having to sort of live by faith, right? As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. So he begins to worship the Lord by setting up these Alters as he goes through. In a sense, you can almost feel as if he's kind of trying to at least lay claim to the land for Yahweh, the Lord. I'm going, to sit, I'm going to create an altar here and worship God. I'm going to create an altar here and worship God. And more than likely, these town names that you see here, Bethel, Ai, these are more than likely the names of those towns in the days of Moses. Because Bethel doesn't really get its name until Jacob goes there, and he calls the place Bethel, and there's really no town there yet. So um, these regions, oftentimes you're going to see the names that they have when Moses wrote this, as opposed to the names that they may have had when Abram was actually there. In, in some cases, you'll say, and he comes to this town, and it used to be called this. Okay, So it's just Moses kind of giving you the, uh, some of the commentary on that. So that's where we left off last time. This is a turning point in redemptive history. This is a, marks a new stage where, uh, where God had initially decided you know, he was going to work through Adam, and that failed, that uh, Adam failed in that covenant. Now 
through the covenant he makes with Noah to preserve the world, he now focuses and draws all of his attention on this one individual. The, all these genealogies have been leading now to Abram, and he's going to be the one who's going to kind of take the ball going forward uh, by God's help and move this plan of redemptive history forward uh, through uh, the rest of the book of Genesis. Now as we get to the passage we just, we just looked at and we just read uh, this evening, starting in verse 10, we're going to see Abraham's, Ab- I keep, I'm going to be going back and forth, I may slip and call him Abraham. He's not Abraham yet, okay? Uh, we're going to see Abram's faith put to the test, okay? This faith that caused him to move out and leave his home and go to the land that God showed him is now going to be put to the test. And this is something you see oftentimes in Scripture, right? Somebody moves out in faith, and then that faith is put to the test. And it's not so that God knows. God knows whether we're going to be faithful or not. This is for us, right? You know, these trials of faith, right? What does James say? Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because the testing of your faith, he says, produces steadfastness. And steadfastness produces endurance, and endurance leads to uh, maturity or perfection. So these testings of the faith here are, in a sense, for Abram's benefit. So that Abram will learn to trust in the promises of God. Because what we're going to see here is he's not going to trust in the promises of God. He's going to take his eyes off of God. He's going to take his eyes off of faith. And he's going to walk by sight and not by faith. Right? How many people here have walked by sight and not by faith in their life from time to time? Okay. Uh, you don't need to raise your hands because I, all hands should be up at this point. So that's what we're going to see here. And what we're going to see in this passage really is that the Lord is faithful to Abram even when Abram's faith falters. Abram's faith is going to go back and forth. We're going to see this as we continue through the story of Abram. He's going to have a failure like tonight, then he's going to have a success. Then he's going to have another failure. You're going to see him repeat this sin. You're going to see his son repeat this sin. You know, it's, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as we like to say. But through it all, God remains faithful. And that's the point we need to take away. God remains faithful to Abram, even when Abram's faith falters. So we've got, uh, I believe I have four points tonight. See, I told you I can do more than three points. Four points tonight. You're going to see Abram's faith challenged in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So when we last left Abram and company, he was sojourning in the promised land, building altars as he went, as we see in verses 8 and 9. He had journeyed now toward the south. So if you have an idea of how Israel looks in the Middle East, how the land of Canaan looks in the Middle East, he's close to that Sinai Peninsula. He's in the Negev. He's in the south area. And that's where we last leave him. And now we're not told how much time has passed. Uh, In a sense, it's probably irrelevant, uh, probably a relatively short period of time. But we see that there is a famine in the land. And that word there for famine means just famine or hunger. And it's a severe famine. That word for severe, uh, kaved, it's the word that is oftentimes used to talk about glory. Right? We talk about somebody's glory. And when you see glory, glory means, the word literally means heavy or weighty. Right? When you, 
when it's used of God, it's to show that his glory is, has substance. It's weighty, right? It's not fleeting. It's not hevel. It's not vapor. It's weighty. Well, here, this famine, is, it's a weighty. It's a heavy famine, okay? It, it's, a, it's a great famine. Now, we know, you know, if you've read through the Old Testament at all, famines play a big part in redemptive history, right? Uh, famines happen all the time. You're going to see another famine in chapter 26, verse 1. That's going to drive Isaac to, to relocate. You're going to see a famine in chapter 43, verse 1. That's the great famine of during Joseph's time, in which the entire world had to come to Egypt for, for food. Um, think about Ruth in the book of Ruth. When we looked at uh, the book of Ruth, what happens when uh, Naomi and her husband are in Bethlehem? It says that there was a great famine in the land. And there's a little wordplay going on because Bethlehem means house of bread. And there's a famine in the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. So what do they do? They leave the promised land, right? The, her husband's name... Uh, I believe is, um, uh, uh, I think it means God is my king, is, is what it means. So he leaves the land of the king to go into a foreign land because there's no bread in the house of bread, right? So this, this famines play a big role in redemptive history. They, they oftentimes move people from place to place, and they're oftentimes used by God to get people from one location to another. That's how he gets uh, the people of Israel into Egypt in the first place so that he can then rescue them out of Egypt. And they are, so again, they're, they're providentially orchestrated by God. Uh, if you do have a hymnal handy, I do want to look at Heidelberg, Lord's Day 10, question 27, which can be found on page 864 in the back of the hymnal. So Lord's Day 10, question 27, where it asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer reads, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things, so in case he doesn't mention it, he has that catch-all bucket there, all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand. So here uh, we often talk about, theologically, we often talk about God working his plan through two ways. He executes his decrees through the works of creation, which you see in Genesis 1, right? He creates in six days. And then the rest of it is God's providence, where he upholds everything and governs all things and works all things so that they perfectly accomplish his will. And included there are, right, fruitful years and barren years. So this, this famine is providentially orchestrated by God. Now, so there's a famine in the land. What does Abram do? Does he say, well, 
God has called me to this land. He has promised me this land. I'm going to stay in this land. I'm going to trust in the promises of God, right? Is that what Abram does? Unfortunately, no. That's, not what, that's what he should have done. Abram should have said, God has brought me this far. I'm going to trust in the Lord to provide for me. I'm going to stay in the land that he's called me to stay in. But he doesn't. He doesn't trust in the Lord. He doesn't tough it out. Abram goes to Egypt. Again, uh, in the Hebrew, that word is Mitzrayim. And if you remember from Genesis chapter 10, that is one of the sons of Ham, Mitzrayim. So he leaves the land of promise to go to the land of Egypt to dwell there. The word literally means to sojourn, to dwell for a time. He wasn't intending to stay there, but he was intending to go there long enough so that the famine would be relieved. Now, Egypt, thanks to the fact that it had the Nile River, which was uh, it provided for, uh, it, put it this way, Egypt was relatively famine-resistant. Now, we, we're going to see later on, Lord willing, if we get to the end of Genesis, that even in Egypt, that famine is going to be great. That great famine during the days of Joseph is so great that even the land of Egypt is going to feel it. But in this kind of famine, apparently, it was probably just a lighter one, at least for Egypt's sake. Um, it was severe in the land of Canaan. But Egypt is relatively famine-resistant, so it was a natural place to flee in the case of famine. This was not just for Abram. It was for the entire region. If there was a famine, oftentimes they end up going to where the food is, and that oftentimes was Egypt. But here we see Abram's faith challenged, right? His faith is challenged. In the last section, we saw Abram walk in faith, right? Because we looked at Hebrews 11, uh, verse 8 and following. It says, by faith, Abraham left his home and went to a place he didn't know because that's where God told him to go. So we see Abram walk in faith earlier. Now, here he is sojourning in the promised land. Uh, dwelling in the land, uh, you know, obviously moving from place to place. And then when a famine strikes, he, his faith starts to cha get challenged. He starts to look with his eyes now. He's like Peter walking in the water. He no longer keeps his eyes focused on Christ. He looks at his circumstances. That's when he begins to sink. A famine strikes. And with no explicit instruction from God, what does Abram do? Well, he goes to where the food is. He says, I'm going to go to Egypt, because that's where they have food. Abram begins to walk by sight and not by faith. So now we here see Abram's faith falter in verses 11 through 13. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So as the old saying goes, right, out of the frying pan into the fire, right? His faith is challenged. His faith uh, does not survive the challenge, and he goes to Egypt, and now he begins to concoct a plan to uh, preserve him while he's there. So he, he not only begins to falter on the Lord's provision, he begins now to falter also on the Lord's protection. Now remember, what was part of the blessing that God said to him? 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless you and make your name great. God provided. He said, I will protect you. I will protect you from those who seek you harm. If they seek you harm, I will curse them. We're going to see that played out a little bit later on here. But if they bless you, I will bless them. So Abram begins to falter. He, does, he fails to believe that the Lord will provide for him during the famine, and he fails to believe that the Lord will protect him while he's in Egypt. So Abram begins to take matters into his own hands. He realizes, I am a stranger in the land of Egypt. And he looks at his wife, Sarai, and says, you are a beautiful woman. Now, you've got to do some math here. Right? Abram, when he left Haran, was how old? 75 years old. We know that Abram was at least 10 years older than Sarai. So Sarai is at least how old? 65 years old. And she is a very attractive woman at 65. You're like, I'm 65 and I don't feel as attractive. <laughs> yeah, well, you also have to figure out when did Sarai die? She died when she was 127, right? <laughs> so if you're 65 and you died at 127, that's kind of middle age, right? That'll be like, if, you're, you know, if you die at 90, you're 45. So um, be that as it may, she did live longer, um, and she was probably still a very attractive woman. But they also may have also been looking at qualities other than just physical attractiveness, too. But the point is, Abram looks at his wife and says, you are very attractive. You have a beautiful countenance. Your face is beautiful. And I'm afraid that they will kill me to get to you. If they realize I'm your husband and they want you, the only way to get you is to get rid of the competition. So they're going to kill me to get to you. So I've got a plan. What, yeah, very common in that day, exactly. Um, so I've got a plan. It says, here's the plan. I'm going to say you're my sister, which is half true, right? Because you are. We will find this out later. She's his half-sister. They have the same father, different mothers. So we'll say you're my sister so that it will go well with you? No, it will go well with me. <laughs> That's what Abram says. So that it will go well with me for your sake and that I might live because of you. So if they know she's his wife, he might be killed so that they can take Sarai into their harems. But if they believe she is his sister, his life will be preserved. In other words, they'll probably more try to negotiate with him in order to get her rather than kill him to get her. Now, as we said, we know this is 100% false, but half a truth is still a whole lie. So um, Abram uh, is lying here. This is a ploy. Uh, now, Abram will use this again. We'll see this in chapter 20. He goes to a different place, uh, and, and there he uses the same tactic. And then we're going to see Isaac use the same tactic. Uh, you know, the, tr the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say. What's that? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, it's easy. Okay, we can look here and say, well, Abram, why didn't you trust God? Right? I mean, you trusted God to leave your home and go somewhere where you didn't know. Why didn't you trust God in this case? And whenever I attempted to think that way, I always like to point the mirror back at me. Right? Because that's really what we should be looking at here. How often... Do we show the same lack of faith in God? How often do we walk by sight and not by faith? We know the promises of God, but sometimes we hedge our bets. 
Sometimes we take matters into our own hands. Sometimes we try to uh, secure God's blessings through our own plans. We don't trust that the Lord will provide. But Abram's situation here is grievous because he is putting his wife's life in danger. He's putting his wife's integrity on the line to save his life. Because what happens, and we're going to see his fears realize, what happens if she is taken? What happens if she is put into somebody's harem? What happens if someone does take her to be his wife, their wife? Now Abram's in a pickle when that happens, right? So he is putting the promise. Actually, what Abram's doing here is he's putting God's promise at risk. He's not in not trusting the Lord to provide for him and not trusting for the Lord in the Lord to protect him. He is by his own actions, he is putting the promise of God at risk. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 14 through 16 as Abram's fears are realized. He enters Egypt, and it seems that his fears are realized in verses 14 through 16. So it was, when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman, that she was very beautiful. So Abram is not looking through beer goggles, as they say. Uh, the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. Now it comes, you know, it comes to Pharaoh's attention. That's the problem, okay? It's, not, it's bad enough that the other Egyptians saw that she was beautiful. Now it gets to Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh's like, oh, I can add her to my harem. I can add her to my, my stable of, of beautiful women that I have here. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, to be sure... He compensated Abram well. It says here in verse 16, he treated Abram well for her sake. He gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Abram made out well in this deal, except for the fact that his wife is now in Pharaoh's harem. Okay. There's a problem here. There is a problem here. Now, you know, Pharaoh, that's just the name, you know, that's just the name that they use for their kings. He takes her into his harem. Now, for Abram's trouble, he does receive much livestock and many servants. Uh, it appears, in a sense, at least from Abram's sake, that his plan was a success. He's alive. He's wealthy. Uh, he hasn't been harmed for Sarai's sake. One small problem. What was God's promise in chapter 12, verse 2? I will make you a great nation. You will have many offspring. I will make you into a great nation. How is that going to happen now with Sarai in Pharaoh's harem? <laughs> What's that? Exactly. Right. So he cannot be a great nation if his wife is now in Pharaoh's harem. Furthermore, in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord appears to him and says, To your descendants I will give this land. How is he going to have descendants if his wife is in the harem of another man? He is putting God's promises in danger. Abram can't be a great nation if his wife is now in Pharaoh's harem. There will be no offspring to inherit the land as things now stand. So Abram's fears are not only realized, but they're magnified in the sense that by not trusting in the Lord, he has put himself in a far worse position than he would have been had he just stayed in Egypt. In Canaan, in Think about this. How many times have you done something stupid, 
compounded the error by doing more stupid things. And then you realize at the end of it that I would have been better if I had not done the first stupid thing to begin with, right? If I would have just stuck it out and, and stayed where I was, I would be far better off than if I hadn't gone through these three or four steps to get into a worse position, right? It's like when you go to Vegas, I'm not saying you go to Vegas, but if you were to go to Vegas, let's say, and you start betting and you start losing and you start doubling down. That's, that's kind of what's going on here. Abram is betting and he's doubling down. Every time the bet gets worse, I will, okay, double or nothing. Oh, I lost again. Double or nothing. Oh, darn it, I lost again. Isn't this so often the case, right? We try to help God out. You know, there's a famine. God, I'll help you out. I'm going to go to Egypt. I'm going to preserve my line. But I've got a plan here. We try to help God out with his plan, and we end up making things exponentially worse. That's what's going on here. They are exponentially worse. But I also, again... Like I said earlier, I want to go back and caution us, lest we think too harshly of Abram, right? We are guilty of these very same things so many times. It is difficult to live in that gap, as we said, between promise and reality. Uh, we have very many promises given to us, right? We have the promise of eternal life that is ours now by faith in Christ. We have the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. We have the promise of glorified bodies yet, we don't have them yet. They are given to us. We have them in an already sense, but we don't have them in a full, consummated sense. And, it's, and it can be hard. And can, we can, you know, like Paul says, you know, we often don't walk by faith. We often do walk by sight. We often do take our eyes off of Christ. We often do fall into the waters like Peter did when we take our eyes off Christ. It's difficult to live in the gap between promise and reality. But now, finally, we're going to see the Lord's faithfulness vindicated, right? We saw Abram's faith challenged, Abram's faith faltering, Abram's fears realized, but the Lord's faithfulness is vindicated. Because who's the hero in this story? It ain't Abram. <laughs> the hero in this story is God. In fact, spoiler alert, as we go through the rest of Genesis, and if we have time and Lord willing, we go through the other books of the Bible, the heroes are not the men that you see here. The men are just vehicles through whom God shows forth his glory, through whom God uh, executes his plans. The great heroes of the Bible, the Abrahams, the Moseses, the Davids, yes, they did mighty things. Yes, they did wonderful things, but they did them in the power of the Lord. And the Bible does not shy away from showing the failures of Abraham, from showing the failures of Moses, from showing the failures of David, right? Abraham, we see here, his faith falters. And Abraham is called the father of the faithful. Now think about that for a second, right? Abraham in the New Testament is called the father of the faithful, yet here his faith falters. Moses is the great redeemer of Israel, yet Moses got angry and struck the rock and was prevented from going into the promised land, among other things that Moses did. David, the great king of Israel, the man who was after God's own heart, yet he committed great sin with Bathsheba and then doubled down, right? Double or nothing, okay? And he then has Bathsheba's husband killed. All of them, all of the heroes in the Bible are people with feet of clay, right? We saw Peter this morning in our sermon. 
uh, Peter who denies the Lord. Paul, who was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. John, who, uh, you know, like all the disciples, fled when Christ was arrested. All of these men and women are people with feet of clay, yet God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. God made a promise to Abram. And if you look at the promise again in chapter 12, it's an unconditional promise. He says, I will bless you. He doesn't say, I will bless you if you do this. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you if you do that. No, he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a great nation. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. I will do these things for you, Abram. God is faithful. God cannot deny himself. Abram's faith is challenged. His faith falters. His fears are realized. But God's faithfulness is vindicated. The hero of this narrative is God, not Abram. So God then moves, right? The promise is in danger. Abram has come in. He is through a lie, has let his wife be taken by Pharaoh. So now the promise of being a great nation, now the promise of the descendants inheriting the land is in danger. So God now moves in to act. And we see in verse 17, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. That's a Hebrew way of talking where you have a verb and a noun that are the same word. So he plagued them with plagues, right? <laughs> You know, it's, it's the same word there in Hebrew, a noun version and a, and a verb version. The word is nagah. It means to strike. Uh, it can be to strike with a plague. And what you see here, in a sense, is foreshadowing the exodus, right? Because what happens when God's people are back in Egypt for 400 years? God plagues them, right? He sends plagues to deliver his people. Well, it's kind of foreshadowed here, in a sense, as God plagues Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, with enormous plagues. Nagaim uh, Gedolim, that's great plagues. And it's not for Abram's sake that he does this. For whose sake does he do it? For Sarah. <laughs> Again, here's uh, Abram fails, right? As the husband, he's supposed to love and care for his wife. What does he do? He lets her get taken by a foreign king. So God says, I will preserve Sarai. I will do this for her sake, not for you, Abram. Um, so Pharaoh calls Abram and says to him, what is this that you, now he must have been, I don't know if, Abram, if Pharaoh had any kind of revelation that this was from God. He, he, more than likely, he just put two and two together. I took Sarai, all of a sudden I'm getting plagued. It's kind of like when uh, you see in 1 Samuel when the Philistines capture the ark, and they're like, we've got the ark of God, and then they put it in their house, and all of a sudden, we're getting plagued. We've got to get rid of this ark thing. This is not good for us. So we need to get rid of this woman. Uh, and he goes to Abram. What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Here's the convicting thing. When a pagan unbeliever actually acts more morally than the believer. Right? I mean, Pharaoh apparently has a better view of marriage then Abram is showing here. Okay? Abram says, eh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Half true. Pharaoh's like, 
Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I wouldn't have taken her if, she was, if I knew she was your wife. Take her and go. Here's your wife. Go. And that also kind of foreshadows, if you will, the exodus. Because what happens after the 10th plague? It says, get your stuff and get out of here. <laughs> Just leave. We've had enough. We, we no longer have a nation. It's been destroyed. So uh, irony of ironies. Abram. Now, here's, here's an irony, too, right? What's the irony? You remember chapter 12, verse 3? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the families of the earth. Is Abram being a blessing here to the families of the earth? Nope. <laughs> They're being cursed by it. Now, again, this, this fulfills the part where I will curse those who curse you. But Abram was to be a blessing to the nations, yet he's bringing plagues on this nation. We see this also in chapter 20, verse 18, when he does this again. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, uh, we find out that all the wombs in his house have been shut. No one can have babies because, uh, again, because Abram's lie, he takes Sarai into his, into his home, and then all of a sudden, all the wombs in his land are shut. So Abram is not a blessing. He is, this is ironic, but Pharaoh was able to discern that the plagues coincide with the arrival of Abram and Sarai, so he calls Abram to account. As I said in another move that foreshadows the exodus, Pharaoh gives Sarai back and says, take your stuff and leave. Get out of the country. So he does. He leaves with all his stuff. So God, think about this here. God is faithful to Abram in the sense that even through his sin, Abram is still, in a sense, blessed with all of these things that Pharaoh gave him when he took Sarai originally. Now, as we bring this to a close, this event shows that even the best of us can fall, right? Heidelberg 114 says, even the holiest of men have a small beginning in the holiness that is required by God. And here you have the father of the faithful, as we mentioned here, and he has this lapse, this great lapse of faith, which goes to show Abram isn't perfect. Newsflash, in case you were wondering about this, Abram's not perfect. And guess what? Neither are we. We are not perfect either. If you remember, uh, you know, I quoted this verse several times already tonight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is always, always points us to things that we cannot see, but things in which we are to trust. It points us to trust in things that are not apparent to our senses. That's why we need faith. That's why uh, when Christ comes, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 13, the great, you know, these things are great, faith, hope, and love. But we're not going to need hope or faith when Christ comes because faith will be realized and hope will be apparent before us. That we, what we have faith in, what we hope for, are those things that we cannot see when they're here with us. Who needs faith? Who needs hope? It's here. Until then, we walk by faith. Until then, our faith is in the things that we cannot see, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, we looked at this before. Uh, faith is the substance of things not seen. It is the evidence of things hoped for. But because we're fallen people in a fallen world, we are prone to trust our eyes, right? right? We all act like we're from Missouri. Show me. Show me. I need to see it with my eyes. Sorry, I know my wife's from Missouri. You were born in Iowa, so get over it. <laughs> You only lived in Missouri. 
But, you know, we want to see, right? You know, we, we, we want to be proved. We want to, have, uh, we want to have proof. We want to have evidence. We don't want to take things on faith. But aren't you glad that your weak faith does not thwart the plans of God? <laughs> right? Praise the Lord for that. Our weak faith does not thwart the plans of God. Abram's faith here is at a low point. But his weak faith did not derail the plans of God. God would not allow his plans to be messed up by a person of little faith. As Jesus would often say to his disciples, ye of little faith. And here Abraham is showing that he is also of little faith. His faith, his lack of faith, did not derail God's covenant promises. Neither will our failures, neither will our sin derail God's plans for us. Of course, the good news is that where Abraham was faithless, guess what? Christ is faithful. It is in Abram, through Christ, that the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Gospels we saw preached beforehand. Galatians 3.8 says that the Scriptures, foreseeing beforehand and preaching the Gospel beforehand, said in Genesis 12.3, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, Abram. In other words, that is the Gospel in seed form. Christ is the one who will bring these blessings to the world. Christ was tempted. right? Abram is tempted, he fails. Christ is tempted and he succeeds. You will please turn with me to Matthew 4. If you know the Gospel of Matthew, you know exactly what's going on here. It is oftentimes, you, you get the temptations oftentimes after a great success that seems to be the plan right and in Matthew chapter 3 Jesus presents himself to for baptism to John the Baptist and there's this little conversation between the two of them where John says you know you should be baptizing me not me you and Jesus says let it be done for all to fulfill all righteousness and he's baptized and as he comes out of the water of course you know how the story goes says the spirit descends in the form of a dove and you hear the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So you've got this great acclamation by God to all who are present that this one here in the water before you is the son of God, attested to by the spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. So you have this great moment in the life of Jesus and then immediately he's led into the wilderness. Right? Wilderness is often the sign of testing. It's the place of testing in the wilderness. Israel was tested in the wilderness. And the first thing the tempter says, Satan says when he sees Jesus, is if you are the Son of God. Now, God has already said, this is my Son. That should be enough for everybody. But the tempter comes and tries to tempt Jesus by saying, if you are the Son of God. And you're hungry because you've been fasting for 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, go ahead and do it. You should be able to do it. It should be nothing for you. And it is nothing for him. But Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then you see another test, right? The devil took him up to, into the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, again, 
Satan only has like a couple of bullets in his gun, right? This is the same temptation he, go, he, he presents to Eve in the garden, right? Did God say, right? It's always causing you to tempt the word of God. God said, this is my son, and Satan's saying, are you the son? If you're the son, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He, so now Satan's like, look, okay, you want to quote scripture? I'll quote scripture. It is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I always kind of picture this like, uh, you know, the Charlie Daniels song, right? The devil went down to Georgia. It's like, this is like the fiddle battle, right? It's like, oh, I, well, you're a fine fiddle player, devil, but I, I mean, <laughs> I'm a fine fiddle player too, right? It's okay, you're going to quote scripture, I'm going to quote scripture right back at you again. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. All right, round three, the devil takes him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, God, Jesus is already the king, right? He's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now in your midst. Yet we do know that, even according to Christ, that Satan is the ruler of this age. So Satan's like, look, you're the king, these kingdoms are going to be yours. Take them now. Take them now if you would just bow down before me. I will relinquish my control over the kingdoms of the world and give them to you. And Satan, then Jesus says, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came to minister to him. Three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he responds with Scripture. And um, thwarts the plans of Satan. He was tempted in the wilderness. Abram was tempted with a famine. He fails. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and he succeeds. He was tempted again in the garden in Matthew 26. We won't look there, but I firmly believe that that was a satanic temptation there. You just don't see the name Satan there. But again, what is Satan trying to do to Jesus? He's trying to get him to shortcut the kingdom of God, right? Jesus realizes that the kingdom will be his, but he's got to go through the road of the cross. And every one of Satan's temptations are to get Jesus to avoid the cross. Bow before me now, I'll give you the kingdom. You don't have to go to the cross. Or have this cup pass from me. Do not go to the cross. Do not go under the pain and the judgment of God. That's the temptation in Matthew 26. Yet Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Right? Not my will, but let yours be done. Hebrews 12, 2. I like to quote this often where it says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross and despised the shame. He knew the road he had to go. He knew the path he had to take. And he knew that that path led through the pains of the cross. And he said, I will endure that cross. And I will despise the shame of that cross because I know the joy that rests and waits for me on the other side of that cross. And I'm not going to shortcut it. I'm not going to skip it because that's the road that the Father has given me to travel. That is the work that the Father has given me to do. I came to do work and that was to atone for the sins of my people. Abram's faith fails. And yet he's blessed because God faithfulness vindicates him. Christ is faithful where we are not. And he remains faithful. And we can trust in him and we can rest in that 
where we are faithless, God in Christ is faithful. I will stop here. Next time, Lord willing, on the 5th of November, so it's going to be a three-week break because of the 5th Sunday. Uh, The 5th of November, the plan is to cover all of chapter 13. So we will look at chapter 13 next time.